Romans chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Most of us feel like we dominate or achieve in one area of our life, you know, better than most people we know. Um, you know, may, maybe you think that you, you dominate in card games, or maybe you, you just think, you know, there's this one card game where, like, if you get to play that card game with your family, your friends, you'll win. And you take great pride in that. When me and Bethany play Uno together, she wins. And she wins. And she wins. I think one time we played, like, I don't know, 15 games? in a, 18 games? And how many of them did you win in a row? <laughs> right. I said, we're done! We are done! We're not doing this anymore. Um, but maybe it's not card games. You know, Maybe you're like me when it comes to card games and you're just not good at it, right? Um, maybe, it's, maybe it's a board game. Maybe it's a video game. Maybe it's your career that you feel like you dominate in. Um, maybe it's a sport that you enjoy playing. Maybe it's maybe it's cooking. Maybe it's grilling. Maybe it's some sort of arts thing or music or maybe you enjoy math. Uh, but most of us have something that we're like, you know, compared to most people I know, I, I do pretty well in my age bracket on this this area. And yet, if, if we grow and know enough people, what happens? Eventually. Bethany will probably find somebody who can beat her in Uno. Maybe not 18 times in a row, but somebody will beat her, right? Um, and, and so as we, we think about this idea of dominance, when it comes to the creation, when it comes to who dominates church life, when it comes to who dominates your life, what dominates? What is it that is preeminence? What is it that is succeeding, that is flourishing within those spheres of your life? When it comes to creation, the church, your own personal walk. And what Paul is teaching us in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, is that Christ is the preeminent one. He is the one who is to dominate in every area of your life, both in the creation order as he's made it, both in the church as its purpose is centered in the work of Jesus Christ and in your own life, how you and I are to live before a watching world. It's supposed to be dominated by the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And so I believe that the theme of the passage is this. Jesus claims preeminence in creation, the church, and your life. Jesus Christ claims preeminence in creation, the church, and your life. It's all-encompassing. There is no area of life that he says this area is out of the preeminence of Jesus Christ. If you would take your Bibles with me and let's read the passage. We're going to be reading Colossians 1, 15 through 23. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him 
all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you have given us your son, and the fact that your son is preeminent in all that we see and in all that we do. We pray that as we see the preeminence of Christ in the creation order, as we see how he sustains and keeps creation, as we think about the purpose of the church in proclaiming the reconciliation that is available through Jesus Christ, we pray that it would help us to see that our own lives are to be orchestrated around the same idea. This is the order of creation. This is how life is meant to be in a fallen world. As we long for and look forward to the day when your Son will reconcile all things to yourself. We pray that you would help us to listen. You, you would help me to communicate your truth clearly. And that we would understand it and seek to apply it and live it this coming week. In your name we pray. Amen. Jesus Christ is preeminent in creation. And there, I think there's really two different parts to this. He begins, and as he begins, he says he's preeminent in creating. And so as we look at what has been created, Jesus Christ is preeminent in what has been created. If you look with me at verse 15, he, this is Jesus Christ, he's been describing him in verses 13 and 14, and the fact that he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And he's continuing now to describe who Jesus Christ is. He says he is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. And so the idea is that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. Jesus Christ has made visible what otherwise would not have been seen. And that's the same idea that John has communicated to us in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. God is seen primarily through the work of Jesus Christ. The Word has made God known to us in a way that was not possible for us to know Him. But He doesn't stop there in His description of God. He goes on and He says, As the firstborn over all creation, He is an authority over the created order. I believe that's what He's trying to communicate with that second phrase in verse 15. Jesus Christ is the firstborn over all creation. That isn't saying that He was created... The idea instead is 
He's the preeminent one. He's the most important part of the world. He's the one who has authority. He is the one who is in control of it. And it's seen how. How do we know this? Well, look at verse 16. What does he say? He gives us a word that describes what's just been previously said. He is the image of God, and he's the firstborn over all creation. Why? For, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him. And so what's being communicated here is what? That Jesus Christ is the owner. That means he owns you. That means he owns your stuff. That means he owns the stuff that you will someday come into possession. And so it puts him in this position of great power and great authority, and it calls us to ask ourselves, how am I using what I have been entrusted with by God? He is ultimately the owner. I am not the owner. I am simply the steward of what's been given to me. And so creation finds its purpose in the creator. Notice he doesn't simply say that he is created. He is the one who creates. But he also tells us that he is the purpose or the intent of all this. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. Many people will propose many different purposes for creation, right? Some people propose that creation is its own purpose. But sustaining creation as we see it now is its own purpose, right? There's lots of people who would hold to that philosophy of the universe. It's a wrong philosophy, right? Why do I say it's wrong? Because that's what Scripture says is wrong. Because Scripture here says that Creation is for who? It's for him. Meaning what? It's to portray and demonstrate to the watching world the supremacy of Jesus Christ. He has created this. He's the owner. And so the watching world is to see the greatness of Jesus Christ in his creation. So Jesus is everything, as Paul looks on Paul looks on at this situation, and as he as he does so, he's like, "This is this is everything that I have sought to live for." And he's seeking to encourage the Colossians to adopt a similar philosophy about life. Jesus is preeminent in creation, but it's not simply preeminent in creating his creation. He's also preeminent in that he is the one who's sustaining his creation. Look at verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. He is the sovereign one who keeps everything going according to his plan. So Jesus then further demonstrates his preeminence through sustaining creation. He preserves the universe as his own. He preserves the universe for his glory. 
you notice the passage continuously brings us over and over again to what? This idea that Jesus Christ is all-encompassing. Why? Because he's trying to communicate that the all-encompassing nature of Jesus Christ in the creation order is a model for how you view Christ in your life. So because Jesus Christ is all-encompassing, he is what? Created and keeps the creation going. Then that has implications for how you and I live our lives this coming week. Everything in the created order then points to the splendor of Jesus Christ. And so as we think about this, how would you describe Jesus in relation to the creation? If somebody were to ask you, who, who is Jesus in relationship to the creation? I hope you'd be able to say, Jesus Christ is the one through whom the universe was created. He's the one who has authority over the creation, and he is the one who sustains the creation according to the Father's plan. And then we must be finding ways to proclaim these beliefs. And so how are you finding ways to proclaim these truths? Creation's purpose is to be a model that people can look at and they can learn aspects of truth. They're not going to get saved by looking at it, but they should be able to look at the order of creation and it should challenge them in how they live. Cause them to think, am I living in such a way that I'm modeling this pattern of creation where my life is consumed by the preeminence of Jesus Christ. The passage continues, though. Jesus Christ is supreme in his creation, in the creating process, and in the sustaining process. But, Paul moves on in verse 18, and he says, not only is that true, but Jesus is preeminent in the church. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. The idea is the church is now joining in the same pattern of making who preeminence, of making who the focal point of what we do. Why, why do we gather? If it's not to celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ has, has saved us from a crisis eternity in hell, why would we gather? We, we gather to worship him, to be reminded of his great sacrifice on our behalf. And that is the idea that I believe he's seeking to communicate. The centrality of Christ is evident in the church. It's the focal point. It's what we're all seeking to acknowledge and encourage each other with. That Jesus Christ is preeminent. He's the center of our attention. He's the center of our worship. And Paul says this is evident in the fact that he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. 
He was the first to conquer the grave. It's interesting. He begins and he says, Jesus Christ is the one who is preeminent in creation. He made the universe for his glory. What happened to the universe that was made for God's glory? It fell. The creation that God made in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, where he proclaimed it was all very good, fell in chapter 3. Adam and Eve chose to sin, and the curse came upon the ground, it came upon the vegetation, it came upon the animals, it came upon humankind. Everything fell with those, that response Adam and Eve had in the garden. And I think he's seeking to demonstrate that what's going on with the church. The church is recreating, it's, it's part of this recreating or reconciling work of Jesus Christ. He's, he's making new what has been broken. And, and so he is the firstborn from the dead. He is resurrected. He has conquered the grave. And now the church gathers. And what do we do? Why do we gather on Sundays? Because we're celebrating the fact that he has conquered the grave. He rose from the dead. He's conquered the curse. The curse no longer has a hold on you and I. He's seeking to make all things new. He is preeminent in what we do and why we do it. So he says he has conquered the grave and he is the one who can reconcile or recreate the fallen world. He's the firstborn from the dead that in all things he may have the preeminence. Why do we gather? Why do we do what we do? It's so that Christ's greatness may be seen as the world is reconciled to God the Father. Why? Because there's no other means by which you, your neighbors, your family, your children, your co-workers, people from other countries can be reconciled to God. It's only through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so it's, it's not shocking at all that what does he do in verses 19 and 20? He continues to develop the mission statement and what the church is seeking to accomplish. We're seeking to point people to the fact that they've been reconciled, that they've been made a new creation. And the fact that they're a new creation then requires what? That they're growing so that they can be presented as holy, blameless, and above reproach, right? For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him. Whether things on earth things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. The local gathering of believers then would be meaningless without the resurrected Christ. There'd be absolutely no purpose for a gathering. If Christ had not shed his blood, paying the penalty for your sins, and allowing you to come in in faith and receive his righteousness, 
you might as well go play golf or Nintendo or I don't care what you do. Like pursue another one of the great things that you achieve in life, like playing Uno, but you know, not with me because I don't succeed in that. Christ bears the image of the Father. And God makes reconciliation possible through Jesus, specifically through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus died. He died so that we could be reconciled. And that is what the church is proclaiming. That's how Christ's preeminence is seen in the church. The mission of the church could not be accomplished apart from the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so he is preeminent in the church. His blood is our only hope. It's interesting, this idea of hope, this is the second time this has come up in the epistle so far. If you look with me at Colossians chapter 1, verse 5, he says, Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before the word of truth of the gospel. And in verse, uh, uh, I think I'm actually, am I skipping ahead? I might be skipping ahead. I think I'm skipping ahead. We'll get back to that. So, Christ is preeminent in creation. He's preeminent in the creating process. He's preeminent in the sustaining process. He's preeminent in the church's purpose and mission. So I believe what Paul is now moving on to in verse 21. Notice, he's talked about creation, which is a really, really big concept, right? If you were here this morning, we talked a little bit about light years and just how vast the cosmos is, right? It is a huge concept. And then he moves into a far more narrower idea. I think most of us would have to pretty quickly admit, you know, the church is a lot smaller than the cosmos. Right? And then in verse 21, he gets down very personal, right? And all of a sudden, he's not talking about the cosmos and how Christ is preeminent in the cosmos. And he's not talking specifically about how Christ is preeminent in the, the, the church's life. Verse 21 says, and in you. The fact that Christ is preeminent in the creation order that Christ is preeminent in the mission and the purpose of the church has implications and demands upon how you and I live our lives. I think that's what Paul is seeking to communicate is the preeminence of Christ in creation and in the church now makes demands upon how you and I live our lives this coming week. And so what does Paul tell you and I about how we are supposed to live our lives this coming week? Right? Because it's cool to know that Christ is preeminent in creation. It's cool to know that Christ is preeminent in the purpose of our church, right? But all that's a little fuzzy at times, right? We're not always immediately doing something that we are like, I'm doing this for the church. Not immediately, like, there's connections between everything that we do, okay? But he gets now, now, and he says, and in you. Christ should be preeminent in your life and what you're seeking to accomplish. So in verse 21 through verse 23, and in you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now 
He is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Christ's preeminence in creation and in the church demands Christ's preeminence in my life, whether I'm at church or at work, in my recreation, or anything else that I do. And that's what Paul now is moving towards. He's taking these very big concepts that kind of boggle our minds. I mean, even the size of the universal church and all that encompasses what a the universal church is, like in all the doctrine and all the teaching. Like, that's a really, really big concept. But now he just comes down and he says, in your life, the goal is that you would be able to be presented to God the Father as holy, blameless, and above reproach. So, he says, we were aliens and enemies to God. You and I for God's enemies. We, prior to coming to Christ and salvation, were going in the opposite direction. Maybe unknowingly, maybe unintentionally, maybe without foresight, but the truth is that each one of us at some point in our lives were the enemies of God. And it, it's only by the reconciling work of Jesus Christ made possible through the cross and his shed blood, that you are no longer an enemy. Why? Because it's, you realize that you were an enemy of God. You realize that you were a sinner, that you were separated from God. They were alienated. And you chose to confess your sins and place your faith in his finished work, receiving his righteousness without any good works that you could possibly do. He declares you righteous. He declares you his child. And so Paul says to the, the Colossian believers, he says, this is who you were. But now you've been made a new creation, and a new creation demands what? New works! A new life! You can't keep living the way you were. That's foreign to the concept of a new creation, something that's been completely transformed. You are new and you have a new purpose. And so through the reconciling ministry of Jesus, we are now restored to our initial purpose, that of being for him. Just like verse 16 says, all things were created through him and for him, for his purposes, to bring glory to him, to enjoy him. Now you can once again seek that purpose. Apart from the shed blood of Christ, there is no way you would find yourself glorified and enjoying Christ. And so you have this new purpose. And, and Jesus now has a new goal. You've been recreated. But now the goal is to complete that work in you, with you. Right? Philippians tells us that there's this, this working together of us with God. Pursuing after, seeking after, becoming like Him. And so the new goal is to present us holy, 
blameless and above reproach. We are called then to preserve, persevere in our faith. Faith in our trials is convincing. I think that's really what he's trying to get at. When you and I go through difficulties, when you and I encounter illness, when we encounter loss, when we encounter pain, when we do not have things going the way we want them to, how do we respond to those difficult times of our life? Do we respond by throwing our hands up in the air and giving up? Last night I was working on finishing up stuff for today and Bethany was watching um, the Great British Baking Show. And I don't know if you've watched it, but this was an earlier season, right? An earlier season. And they, they were making this ice cream cake. And I'm not going to say his name because I don't want to bash the poor guy, but... He put his thing in the freezer and somebody, another one of the contestants, took his ice cream out of the freezer and set it on the counter. And if, if you have done anything with ice cream, which you probably all have, when you leave ice cream on the counter, what happens to your ice cream? It melts. And so he gets so frustrated, he takes his ice cream and he puts it on his display thing and he takes it and he just throws it all in the trash. He didn't get to move on to the next level. Why? Because he didn't persevere through that trial. It's a silly illustration in a sense, but how do you respond to the trials? If you respond like that contestant did and you throw the situation away and you respond in anger, does that demonstrate faith? Is that portraying the attitude that Paul is calling the believers to, if indeed you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel? No. It provides you no opportunity to proclaim to those who watch the hope of the gospel. And so how you and I respond to trials, big or small, is an opportunity for us to proclaim the reason we persevere. Because it's not natural for us to persevere through things like our ice cream being taken out of the freezer when we're in a competition, right? Like, I'd be frustrated too. I was angry. Like, I wasn't really watching the show, and then all of a sudden I'm like, what happened to his ice cream? Like, I was, you know, doing stuff. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, that's that's how I responded. And I'm like, I have no emotional connection to this thing, right? How do you respond to trials? What Paul is saying is, you and I must persevere through trials. We must remain grounded in the trials. We must hold on to the gospel that has been proclaimed to us because it is a source of our hope. And to the extent that we do that, we're able to be presented as holy, blameless, and above reproach. And that is how you and I demonstrate the preeminence of Jesus Christ in our lives. It's by persevering through the trials of life 
so that Christ is seen as preeminent. Which will then provide us with opportunities to proclaim and to call to remember the source of our hope and to tell others who we come into contact with. This is why I persevered through this trial. It's because I have a hope that is greater than ice cream. Right? We have a far greater hope than ice cream. We are seeing things, our own souls, being transformed, being made new. And we have the promise that ultimately what's going to happen? Romans chapter 8. The whole creation is groaning, waiting for the day when God will make all things right, will make all things new. One day the trials and the pain and the heartaches and the difficulties that you and I face will all be like nothing. Why? Because the preeminence of Jesus Christ will be seen clearly because he will be the source of light. And so he's saying, hold on to your faith. Remain grounded in your faith. Remain steadfast in your faith. Do not be moved away from the hope of the gospel. And he's writing to people that he says, you've been doing this. This is a cause for my joy. That's what he says in verse 5, right? We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints. Because why? Why are they, why are they persevering in their faith? Why are they loving the saints? Because of the hope of the gospel. And yet he's telling them, don't stop. You've never done it enough. You've never reached. You always must be striving. Why? So that the preeminence of Christ is seen as you are proclaimed before the Father one day, holy, blameless, and above reproach. And so as we think about application, creation demands we proclaim the preeminence of Jesus Christ. The beauty of creation demands that we proclaim the order of creation demands that we proclaim the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And so find ways to use the creation that is a general revelation of God's character to proclaim the preeminence of Jesus Christ. The church demands that we declare the wonder of reconciliation. This is what we have been given. This is what we are ambassadors of. We are ambassadors of the fact that you can be reconciled to God. Through Jesus Christ. And so find friends, find neighbors, find co-workers that you can proclaim the message of reconciliation to. This is how the preeminence of Christ is seen in the church. And then finally, we follow the model of Paul and remain faithful through the trials of life. Paul had all sorts of difficulties, right? It's interesting how many times he was imprisoned, how many times he was beaten, he was stoned. And, and through all that, what did he do? He persevered. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a master. I, I think what Paul is very subtly doing is, 
I understand the preeminence of Christ. And that's what I that's why I do what I do. And just like he tells the Corinthians, imitate me as I imitate Christ, I think he's picking up on similar ideas here. He's like, I am pursuing the preeminence of Christ being displayed in my life. Colossians, I don't know you guys. I didn't start your church. I've heard a lot about you. And what I've heard is good. And you need to persevere in the good that you're doing. Remain steadfast. Remain faithful. Continue proclaiming and holding to the hope of the gospel. Why? Because the preeminence of Jesus Christ will be seen in your lives through that as you are declared before the Father, holy, blameless, and above reproach. Father, we do thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the fact that you are the preeminent one. That you are pre preeminent in the creation. That you are preeminent in the mission of the church that you seek to be preeminent in our lives. We pray that we would have soft hearts to your spirit's leading, that we would be willing to examine our lives, and as we do so, that we would see areas in our lives where we are failing to hold fast to the faith, where we are being swayed in one way or the other, where we have forgotten the hope of the gospel that has saved us. And as we see those failings in our life, we pray that you would help us to confess them and then seek to depend upon you and the promises you give us in your gospel. That as we remind ourselves of those, that our hope would be refreshed, we'd be strengthened, so that one day you would be seen preeminent in our life as we are declared holy, blameless, and above reproach. In your name we pray.